Welcome to another installment of Conversations at the Washington Library, a podcast about early American history and the people who teach it. In this episode, Dr. Kevin Butterfield sits down with Richard Brookheiser, author of the new book, John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. Tickets are still available for candlelight tours of the Mount Vernon estate for the Christmas season. For more information, please check out the Mount Vernon webpage. And now, Dr. Butterfield's interview with Richard Brookheiser. I met with Richard Brookheiser, the author of John Marshall, The Man Who Made the Supreme Court. And I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about how George Washington plays in this book. How did George Washington shape John Marshall? Well, Marshall first encounters him in the Revolution. Uh, Marshall serves from 1775 to 81. Uh, He sees Washington in battle three times, Brandywine, Germantown, Monmouth. He's with Washington at Valley Forge. And his conclusion from these experiences is that George Washington was the man who held the cause together uh, through victories, through defeats, through the army just sitting around not being paid. Uh, When Washington hands his commission back to Congress at the end of the war, Marshall writes this moving letter to James Monroe, whom he briefly went to school with, and he said, at last the military career of that superior man is closed. Whenever I think of him, my full heart overflows with gratitude. Hmm. And this impression just never left him. So, And then after the war, when Washington is the president of the Constitutional Convention, Marshall follows him again, defending the Constitution at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. And then the third time is uh, in the late 1790s when Washington is trying to buck up the Federalist Party in Virginia, and he summons his former junior officer to Mount Vernon and tells him to run for Congress. Marshall doesn't want to do it because he's in private practice as a lawyer and he's making good money and he feels he needs to. Uh, So he refuses and refuses, and then he, he realizes he can't keep refusing Washington anymore. He's got to, like, get up and leave at the crack of dawn. But the story is that Washington got up before he did and put on his uniform. So Marshall, Yes, right, on the piazza. So Marshall had to obey that request. And then, of course, it's Marshall who is the man who tells Congress that Washington has died. Mm -hmm. And that's when he says, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. I almost get the sense in reading this, and I think you maybe even say it directly, uh, that Washington was a, a father figure for Marshall, uh, akin to his own father. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little about uh, about Marshall's relationship with his family, his, his mom and dad. Right. Well, Marshall's father was uh, Thomas Marshall, and uh, Thomas Marshall and George Washington shared a career. They were both surveyors for the Fairfax family. Mm-hmm. The Fairfax grant was this huge tract uh, bigger than New Jersey, which this royal, uh, this noble family owned, and uh, in order to uh, rent it or sell pieces of it, they had to have it surveyed. So they, as we know, they employed a young George Washington, but they also employed Thomas Marshall. Uh, so there's that similarity. Hmm. Uh, John Marshall is the eldest child, eldest son. He's mostly homeschooled. His father wants him to become a lawyer. And one of the texts he reads at home is William Blackstone's Commentaries on the Laws of England, which is the book on 
legality in the English-speaking world in the mid-18th century. So Marshall um, studies what his father wants him to study, and he takes the career that his father wants him to take. They both enlist for uh, the army at the same time, at the beginning of the Revolution. They serve in one battle together. They're in Brandywine together on different uh, wings of the American position. But what, you know, what interested me as a biographer is this: there, there seemed like this almost seamless transition in Marshall's mind from his admiration of his father, which was very powerful, to his admiration for George Washington. Mm. And it's like there's no rebellion, there's no like, well, I didn't like that guy, so maybe I'll admire this guy instead. He admires both of them, and, and the one sort of leads him to the other. Wow. So he chooses a career in the law, apparently at his, at his parents' urging. Um, I, this is uh, maybe a strange question to ask, but if he hadn't been a lawyer and a judge, I only see Marshall as that. What else might he have done? What, what else would he have been good at? What else did he do? Well, he was very good at politics. Hmm. Um, he was good at it. I think the basic reason is that he liked people and people liked him. You know, if you're going to be a vote getter, you got to have that. Hmm. Uh, and he had it. Um, he, he said on several occasions his, his poem became Richmond. And he was elected several times from Richmond, either to Congress or the Virginia legislature. And he, and he would say that eh, most of my constituents probably disagreed with me, but they kept electing me because they liked me. And so, okay, so there's that. But he's also a man of strong political convictions. Uh, after the war, he uh, deplores the way newly independent America is governing itself. It seems very irresponsible and capricious to him. And he thinks there should be a, a more stable and, in some respects, a stronger form of government. Uh, one thing that, that gets to him is uh, people ducking out of debts, you know, both debts to English creditors but also debts to American creditors. And, you know, they're doing this because legislatures will, you know, pass laws allowing this to be done or, you know, delaying payment of debt. And, um, you know, it switches back and forth. It's very arbitrary. No one can plan. Uh, so he's, he's very much uh, for a new constitution, which he hopes will, will resolve some of these uh, problems. And so he's both good at, at, at winning votes, but he also has uh, a set of principles and ideals that he's willing to be an advocate of. And this brings him into tension with his second cousin once removed, Thomas Jefferson. Of course. Uh, Marshall hates Jefferson. Does Marshall, Jefferson hate Marshall? Marshall doesn't hate a lot of people. Jefferson is about, they're like two. Jefferson is one of two. Jefferson hates a fair number of people, but Marshall is always high on this list. They right. just loathe each other. And from Marshall's point of view, uh, well, the first thing is that he thinks Jefferson is a disloyal Secretary of State to George Washington, mm -hmm. that he's carrying out administration policy with one hand but undermining it with the other. And this is um, a sin from which no one can recover in Marshall's mind. If you betray George Washington, that's, that's it. Uh, he also thinks, uh, he calls Jefferson several times a theorist, you know, someone with crackpot notions. Uh, he also thinks he's a demagogue, someone who's willing to ride tides of popular passion so long as they benefit him. Jefferson thinks Marshall is a sophist, that he will take anything and twist it into a predetermined legal 
conclusion. There's that famous point, uh, Jefferson said, never grant Marshall the first yeah, point. Yes, he, tell, he tells this to Joseph Story uh, as Story is on the point of joining the court. And uh, Jefferson said to him, you know, you must never give a direct answer to any question Marshall <laughs> asks you. If he asked me if the sun were shining, I would say, I don't know, sir. I can't tell. <laughs> because if you said yes or no, you'd get Marbury versus Madison out of it. <laughs> so this is, uh, uh, this is the relationship they have. And so weeks after Marshall becomes Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, he has to swear in. Thomas Jefferson as President of the United States for the first time, and then he'll do it again he'll four years again. later. So, so there these two guys are uh, at daggers drawn. Let's jump back just a bit before 1800. Um, Marshall, during the Adams presidency, has some interesting roles to play. Yes, he's, uh, he obeyed George Washington, ran for Congress, and won a seat. Then Adams is um, cleaning out his cabinet Three years into his term, he, he gets rid of two men who he thinks are loyalists to Alexander Hamilton rather than to him. And one of the vacancies is Secretary of State, and he taps Marshall to be Secretary of State. Marshall agrees. And Marshall is a very effective and loyal Secretary of State. Uh, Adams's uh, wife, Abigail, is ill. Uh, he spends a fair amount of time at home tending to her. He's still tending to business by letter, but, but the person in the Capitol on the spot is Marshall, his Secretary of State. And then after Adams uh, loses the election of 1800, uh, Adams gets notice from the third Chief Justice, Oliver Ellsworth, um, that he's going to quit. He's got gout. He's just ill. He's going to quit. So the man that Adams turns to is the man who was the first Chief Justice, John Jay who had done it from 1789 to 95 and then left to be governor of New York. And Adams sends his name to the Senate, and Jay is confirmed. Then he gets a letter from Jay saying, I'm not going to take it. I'm not going to go back to that job. The federal judiciary lacks weight, energy, and dignity. Hmm. So uh, Adams and Marshall are sitting in Adams's office in the new White House, and Adams says, who shall I nominate now? And Marshall remembered saying, I don't know, sir. This is years later. And then he said, Adams paused and said to me, I believe I'll nominate you. Hmm. So this is how John Marshall gets the job. But I think what's, what's interesting about Marshall's relationship with Adams, and also with Hamilton, because Marshall also knew Hamilton from the war, admired him hugely. And these were two Federalists who became the bitterest of enemies, and yet John Marshall is able to maintain friendly relations with both of them. Mm. This is just you know, a feature of his personality. He can get along with people. Uh, he won't let their fights become his fights if he can avoid it. And so he stays popular with, uh, with every shade of Federalist opinion from the most moderate to the most craziest hardcore. They all seem to like this guy. What would he have been like to sit in and talk with? What, what, what can you glean about his personality? Joseph Story said, I love his laugh. Hmm. You know, and I, I was thinking that's the first person I've written about who was described laughing. Wow. I don't remember anything about, you know, Washington's laugh or Hamilton's laugh. I mean, sometimes these people are described smiling. Right. This is his laugh. Hmm. So that's, uh, again, that's this uh, 
this geniality he had, uh, a certain warmth that he had. The word that, that people use over and over again to describe him was simple. Okay. What do you think they meant? Well, I think, you know, he was born in a log cabin. And then the second house he grew up in was a frame house. And then the third one had glass in the windows. So that's not, you know, that's not pioneer living, but it's country living. And I think he just, he just loved his youth. He enjoyed it. And he spends much of the rest of his life in cities, but he... He keeps the habits that he had, and it was, you know, it was a youth that he never really wanted to leave. He never wanted to repudiate it. He just wanted to keep some of that spirit about him. He belonged to a club in Richmond called the Coits Club. This was a social club for the well-connected. It had 30 members, and they would get together every Saturday from May to October and play this game, Quoits, which is horseshoes, but it's played with rings rather than, rather okay. than shoes. That's the same principle you throw them at, at pegs and see who can ring the peg or get closest to the peg. And he just, you know, he loved this game. And there are descriptions of him, you know, measuring whose who's quoit is closer, you know, is it mine or this other man's, and spending as much time and care with that as he would spend on a legal decision. But he just, <laughs> you know, it's like a boyhood game, and he just, he loved it, and he played it all his life. And that, 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 that tells you something about him. Wow. So we've, we've, we've crossed 1800. Um, he is now um, Chief Justice swearing in Thomas Jefferson as president. Um, during the, the Jefferson presidency, there is, of course, the famous moment that every law student, frankly, every history student learns a bit about, uh, Marbury versus Madison. But, and you don't necessarily have to talk about the details of that case. I, I think I'll assume that our listeners know quite a bit. But talk to me a little bit about John Marshall, uh, what, he, what he does in this early uh, episode in his career that helps shape the future of the court. Well, he, he famously finds a portion of a law that Congress has passed unconstitutional. And this was a, a portion of the Judiciary Act of 1789, under which William Marbury was seeking a, a redress, uh, getting a commission that he felt had been awarded to him and that the Jefferson administration had not given him. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, John Marshall didn't invent judicial review. That, that was an idea that was already out there. It was already well understood. Uh, what was newsworthy about the decision at the time is that the bulk of it is a scolding of the Jefferson administration and saying, okay, you guys, you guys said we were the bad guys, you know, and you would come and you'd be the good guys, you'd do everything right, but you haven't. There were these commissions that were signed, sealed, and all was made up and supposed to go to these men, including William Marbury, and you refused to deliver them, which you should have done. Shame on you. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's a 9,000-word decision, and about, I don't know, 8,000 words of it are like shaking a finger <laughs> uh, at the Jefferson administration. And I think Jefferson figured that out pretty quickly, because he, he writes a letter a few years after that where he says it should be considered not law. You know, he just does not like that on the court's records. The the ability for the Supreme Court to decide unilaterally about the Well, no, question? I think he was mainly reacting to the scolding hmm. and, and the fact that the court was examining his behavior as the executive. 
Yeah. You know, now Marshall was saying we can't look at your political decisions. That's that's beyond the court. But this involved a right of William Marbury to have something he was entitled to, a commission he had been awarded, and you prevented him from getting it. So that is something that the courts could look at. Now, he says, well, we can't do it in this case because he's, he's asking under uh, a portion of a law that this is getting complicated, but, you know, it asks us to issue a writ which we, in fact, can't issue according to the Constitution. Mm -hmm. But the principle was that the Jefferson administration should have done something and they hadn't done it. So that's, I think, what annoys Jefferson in this decision. Not many years later, uh, another person that I think Jefferson had his issues with, Aaron Burr, uh, winds up in court, and, and John Marshall is also there. I think you're, you're well equipped to, to give us a little bit of a, a, a rundown of what gets Aaron Burr into court. Um, tell us a little bit about this, I would say, fascinating episode in, in, in early 19th century history uh, and how John Marshall uh, becomes involved. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of it, or, or certainly some of the most important parts of it, we still don't understand, and we probably never will. Uh, Aaron Burr is Jefferson's first vice president, but Jefferson has not trusted him really since day one, because they tied in the Electoral College and Byrd did not step aside. So this resulted in the famous deadlock uh, in the House. Uh, so um, Jefferson does not pick him uh, to be his vice president the second time he runs. So Aaron Burr um, spends some time in the West, and he, he goes down the Ohio and down the Mississippi to New Orleans, and he does this twice, and he's meeting everybody. And he's befriending, among others, General James Wilkinson, who is the senior general in the American Army, stationed in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And you know, one thing Wilkinson has to watch is what is Spain going to do. We have we have the Louisiana Territory, but the next door neighbor is Spain in Texas and in Mexico. And our relations with Spain, the border is unclear, and the relations are, you know, kind kind of fraught. So uh, some people think, based on things Aaron Burr was saying or hinting, that, that he was planning to either invade Spanish Texas and Mexico, maybe tear them off and set himself up as the local ruler, and maybe um, encourage western parts of the United States to join in. I mean, that is the maximum accusation mm -hmm. against this man. And uh, so all this is kind of gossiped about for two years, and then Thomas Jefferson gets a letter from General Wilkinson, you know, saying this terrible plot has been, I have uncovered this, Burr is going to descend the Mississippi with 7,000 men and do these awful things, and so I've imposed martial law, and I'm arresting all these people, and, you know, be warned, be, beware. And Jefferson uh, shares this conclusion, not the letter, but the conclusion with Congress. And he says, um, you know, Burr's guilt is certain, so we're going to have to arrest, pick this guy up. But Burr is, is floating down the Mississippi with 60 men. Uh, he started off in the Ohio River opposite what's now West Virginia. So he's finally apprehended. He is brought uh, to Richmond because the place where his armada set off is in the Richmond circuit of the federal judicial system. So that means he's going to be tried in federal court in Richmond, circuit court, and the justice of the Supreme Court who will be presiding over that trial with the circuit court judge happens to be John Marshall because that's his circuit. Mm -hmm. 
So here are two people that Jefferson has has different grudges with uh, appearing in, <laughs> in the same court courtroom. And uh, Jefferson follows the case very carefully. He corresponds with the uh, the local, the federal attorney who's doing the prosecution. He's constantly like, you know, kibitzing and coaching, and and he, he really wants to hang Aaron Burr. He he, ju- he just thinks this guy was was up to treason. And that is the charge. That is the charge. Treason. Yes. Well, and Marshall construes treason very strictly, because the Constitution says treason must either be giving aid and comfort to our enemies or an act of war against the United States to which there are two witnesses or a confession in open court. But absent that, there have to be two witnesses, two overt acts. Okay, so it can't be giving aid and comfort to our enemies because we don't have any at that moment, so must be an act of, of war, overt act of war. And as the testimony, you know, unfolds, uh, there are people who say, well, I saw, you know, I saw like like 20 guys uh, assembling on this expedition and they, they had, you know, they had rifles and bullets. Uh, and then other people say, well, Burr talked to me and he had all these grandiose plans, but there doesn't seem to be an act of war. Hmm. So uh, at a, at early in the proceedings, Burr's attorneys um, moved to stop testimony. And then Marshall rules an immense ruling. It's 25,000 words. And he agrees to stop the testimony because there has been no proof and there's not going to be any proof of an overt act of war because they've already said everything they can say about the actual action that was undertaken. Um, So Burr walks. Jefferson is furious. But then then we have problems with Britain that, that, that distract everyone. And then the coda to all this is years later, Marshall's dead, Wilkinson is dead, Burr is dead. And looking around in European archives, we discover that James Wilkinson had been a paid agent of Spain for 20 years. <laughs> wow. And Aaron Burr had approached the ambassadors of Britain and of Spain asking for money and help to split up the United States. And they both turned him down. Burr also told, you know, after this trial, he spent some time in Europe. And he meets Jeremy Bentham, the English uh, philosopher, befriends him. And he told Jeremy Bentham that, well, I was going to set myself up as emperor of Mexico and, or maybe in the United States. Wow. So, but, you know, that didn't appear in court. <laughs> so, no part of the case. So, Marshall and Jefferson have another face-off in that scenario. Yes. But it, it also strikes me as important that Marshall is very strictly and tightly construing a, a, a word or crime that is, uh, to this day, I think, very tightly understood in our political system. And, and the, the word is thrown around a lot, but the, the word, the yes. crime is, is certainly very tightly Exactly. And, and the founders did that deliberately because they knew, especially from English history, that treason accusations were just convenient ways for getting rid of your political enemies. And they hmm. didn't want that to happen in the United States. Right. So John Marshall, um, as we move from, from Jefferson's administration into, into Madison's and beyond, um, it, the, the way that I always taught and understood these things is that Marshall, as you were suggesting, had a very uh, conscious understanding of, of property rights and wanting to uh, secure and stable property rights in America for the economy to, to grow and thrive. Uh, but there's also this question of national authority over state authorities. Uh, so we have great moments. McCulloch v. Maryland uh, uh, jumps to mind. But on that question of national unity, um, I, 
I, I learned from reading your book that he saw himself as a disciple of Washington in, in pushing mm-hmm. this. Tell me a bit about Washington, or excuse me, as Marshall, uh, uh, about Marshall as a, as a strong nationalist. Well, he sees the Constitution as an act of the people of the United States, mm. not as an act of the 13 states. It wasn't done by the state legislatures. It was done by conventions elected in each of the states. Now, he admits these were conventions that were state by state, but he says, how else were people going to do it? Right, this is you know, with, yeah. with, with, with transportation being what it was, how were they like all going to come to Philadelphia or someplace? Course, uh, not yeah. hard to do. So, okay, these conventions were state by state, but they were acts of the people. He called it a, a supreme and original act of will. And he saw himself as defending that act of will. Uh, It could be changed. There's an amendment process. Mm -hmm. Ten amendments happened very quickly. Uh, Then there was an 11th amendment, which was also pretty quick. And then a a 12th finally prevents there from being an electoral college deadlock of the kind Jefferson and Burr had. Yeah, exactly. So there were these 12 amendments in Marshall's lifetime, but uh, they, they, they rest upon... Um, this this popular act, and you know, and he he was there when it was happening, you know. So he knows that the Constitutional Convention was a secret conclave. I mean, no one knew what they were up to until they issued the Constitution. Hmm. But then the ratifying process was a year long, and that was super public. I mean, there were minutes of all those conventions. There was journalism. There was debate back and forth, both sides. And this was a very engaged populace passing judgment on this document. So in that sense, Marshall is as populist as anyone else in America. But he sees it as as, a, as an act of the American people in 1787 and 8. And he's willing to accept similar acts later on, you know, so long as they follow the amendment provisions. But he sees his job as chief justice as the defender of that against people that he views as demagogues, which would include his cousin. <laughs> uh, it will include Andrew Jackson when he comes along. It includes, you know, movements in various states to, you know, trim or defy the Constitution, as Marshall would see it, in various ways. And he's going to just do his best to say no when they come before him as Chief Justice. And in one of those scenarios, it winds up being the state of Georgia uh, pushing uh, against the right of, of the, the Cherokee people to have sovereign borders, as I... As well, I, to stay put. To, to stay, stay put. put on the land that, that they had negotiated with the federal government. And this is Marshall's point. Uh, there are two cases come before him um, related to this question. The first is brought by the Cherokee Nation itself against the state of Georgia as a foreign power with whom we have signed a treaty. And Marshall says, well, they, they don't have standing to do that. They're not like France. You know, he calls them a domestic dependent nation, which hmm. is a concept he makes up for the purpose of this decision or defines. Then the second case uh, involves a missionary to the Cherokees who is suing the state of Georgia for being forced to sign a loyalty oath to the state of Georgia if you live among the Cherokees. Any white man who lives there has to sign this oath, and he's not going to do it. And uh, Marshall says the state of Georgia has no business passing such a law because relations with Native Americans are the responsibility of the federal government. 
the federal government signed the treaty with the Cherokees, that's who gets to decide what the relations are and should be, not the state of Georgia. Hmm. So his strongly national yes. identity comes through. Tell me a bit, um, there, there is, a, a, of course, one of the great uh, legacies that George Washington leaves is in his will uh, with the freeing of, of the enslaved people over whom he had full legal control. Um, and you note in your book that John Marshall doesn't live up to that um, legacy. Tell me about John Marshall and, and the institution of slavery. Well, we learned quite recently, and fortunately I was able to take advantage of this. It happened soon enough that I, that I could in my book. But uh, the scholar Paul Finkelman, who's very um, avid for chasing down slavery and what people thought and did or didn't do in the founding era and later, uh, he found that Marshall owned 10 times as many slaves as any previous biographer thought. Wow. Well, they had all looked at um, you know, personal records of purchases that Marshall kept up through the 1790s and then stopped keeping. So by that point, he had 10 or 12, and they figured, well, okay, that's he had house servants, say, in and around Richmond. But so Finkelman looked at his wills and codicils, where he's leaving farm properties to children of his, and he's uh, cross-checking with census records, you know, how many slaves are living on these properties. Mm -hmm. And then, so this becomes like 130 to 150, if you add them all up. Wow. Now, okay, you could, you could own them, but then still have, still come to the conclusion, say, that George Washington did. He owned a lot of slaves, but he frees them all in his will, and he knows that's going to be a public action. Mm -hmm. He knows he's making a public statement by doing that. Marshall doesn't do that. He, um, he had his personal servant, slave, was a man named Robin Spurlock. He'd been one of Marshall's wedding presents from wow. his father. Uh, and then at the end of Marshall's life, he says, uh, Robin, uh, he can be free, and I'll give him $100 if he moves to Liberia, and $50 if he moves out of state, and no dollars if he stays put. Or if he wants to stay a slave, he can pick whichever relative of mine he would like to serve. This man's in his 70s, you know. He's wow. not going to go to Liberia at that point in his life. He doesn't want to leave Richmond, so he picks Marshall's daughter and, you know, I'm sure lives relatively well for the rest of his life, mm -hmm. nevertheless a slave. So I see that as Marshall just not not doing what Washington did, not doing what Hamilton did, who helped uh, found the New York Manumission Society. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as a justice ruling on cases where slavery is involved, he, he follows the positive law. You know, there, he, and he even recognizes that there's a law of nature which, for instance, would forbid the slave trade. Right. And he says that in one of his decisions relating to a slave ship. But he says, but we have to, uh, we have to follow the law of nations under which we don't sanction this anymore, but other countries do. And these other countries are claiming the slaves on this ship. So I have to decide, you know, how many really belong to Spain. That's where he ends up. So he's, um, he's following the positive law in a way that he kind of doesn't with the Cherokees. I, mean, I get the feeling that in the Cherokee decisions, he's looking for a way to help them hmm. and sort of not looking for such ways in decisions having to do with slaves. 
I'd like to uh, bring things to a close by looking at uh, something that I, I thought in, in your book really humanized John Marshall, and that's his relationship with his wife. Mm-hmm. Tell me a bit about her and about their relationship. Well, that that's a very, um, it's kind of complicated and it's poignant. Uh, he met her at the end of the war, and by this time his father was stationed in Yorktown, and he lived next door to a family uh, whose surname was Ambler, and they had a lot of girls. And uh, the eldest were just turning 15 and 14. And so these Ambler girls are hearing from Mr. Marshall next door, oh, my son John, he's doing this, he's doing that, here's his letter. You know, they get this image of this brave soldier and (laughs) so on. And then uh, John Marshall actually shows up, and the elder, the eldest sister says, I was very disappointed when I first <laughs> saw him. I mean, his hair was not combed, and he dressed like a slob, and oh, God, this guy. And then when he starts reading poetry to them, then, then her opinion rises very fast. But her second youngest, the, the next youngest sister, Mary or Polly, she decided, I'm going to get this man. Sight unseen, I want this man. I'm going to go to my first ball, even though I've never had a dancing lesson in my mm-hmm. life. I'm going to get him. And so, you know, they begin courting, and, and and there's a moment in the home stretch where Marshall proposed, and Polly got cold feet. She refused. And then the family story was that a cousin of hers clipped a lock of her hair and sent it off after Marshall to say, no, no, she's still really, you know, is fond of you. And Gene Edward Smith, in his biography of about 15 years ago, I thought he just got this right. He thought Polly probably sent that herself. Mm. But the story of the cousin is to protect her. This is a very intimate act. Mm -hmm. This is almost a nude selfie. (laughs) You know, not quite. This is a very intimate act to do. So this is a, 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 a ardent willful young woman. She wants this man and she gets him. And then they marry. And then something happens very soon. Um, she has, she, she loses three children to, to illnesses. She has a miscarriage and that's terrible. But that was also the common fate of many, many mothers and children. Mm-hmm. But her, it just knocks her for a loop and it's like lifelong she becomes really a recluse Mm -hmm. she doesn't like company she won't go out she doesn't want to meet strangers Uh, Marshall says she's witty she's well read and private you know she's great but she just doesn't want to socialize and he's a very sociable man so there was this this kind of built in tension for years and years and then you know she predeceases him and we have this letter from, from Joseph's story, the next session of the court, which was only like a month after she died. And uh, Marshall like re- recited this poem that General Burgoyne had written about his late wife, and he plugged Polly's name into it. And Story writes home and says, I could tell he'd been weeping. You know, and that's what he does when he's alone. Wow. So this just... Uh, pained him. And the only things he writes on his tomb, he writes his epitaph two days before he dies some years later, and he says, you know, when he was born, who his parents were, when he got married, who his wife was, and his own date of his death. Wow. Nothing about the war, nothing about the court. That's what he wants put on his grave. He is a humble and simple man. Yeah. 
Well, thank you very much for telling us about John Marshall, and, uh, and I, I feel as if I, I know him much better than I ever did before. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations at the Washington Library. Be sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.